Hi there, I'm Amiria Freeman, and you're listening to Lone Listen. When we think of home, certain words typically come to mind. Family, refuge, warmth, stability, roots. Over the last few weeks, I've been thinking of another word, haunted. My home, the beachy Hampton Roads region nestled in southeastern coastal Virginia, is the site of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in the colonized New World. It's also the site of increasing vulnerability to climate chaos, prompting writer Michael Scholson to ask, is Hampton Roads on the edge of the apocalypse? Knowing all of this, I can't help but think my home is a haunted one, a place where the ghosts of colonialism, imperialism, racial capitalism, white supremacy, an environmental catastrophe, roam and walk freely. Amid quarantine, it feels as though we're all having to confront the hauntedness of our homes. Many of us are returning to our first homes and maybe being forced to deal with the specters of family dynamics we've tried to forget long, long ago. Our nation, a contested home for many of us, is undergoing its own exorcism as we all confront the ghosts of our nation's past and present. In this collective moment of communing with our ghost, our traumas, our anxieties, our things unsaid, what is there to learn? And what can our haunted homes teach us about healing, surviving this moment, and creating the worlds we long for? In this episode, I'll be speaking with Jessica Lynn. Jessica is a writer, art critic, and founding editor of Arts.Black, an online journal of art criticism from Black perspectives. Her writing has been featured in publications such as Art in America, The Believer, Bomb Magazine, The Nation, Freeze, and elsewhere. She is the recipient of a 2020 Graham Foundation Research and Development Award and is currently at work on a collection of essays about love, faith, art in the U.S. South. Jessica lives and works in coastal Virginia. Throughout this conversation, we talk about the healing that comes from navigating haunted spaces and naming the ghosts embedded in our homes and in our bones. This is a really special conversation that can only come about when two Scorpios come together. But first, before we dive into our conversation, here's Jessica with a really brief tour of her home place. Hi, Emilio. It is currently the beginning of fall here in the Hampton Roads where I live a place I know you are also very familiar with. And as much as I love summer, autumn along the coast is really something beautiful. Throughout quarantine, I have tried to hold fast to a few rituals and practices that keep me grounded. Most mornings, I wake up and begin the day by listening to the news and getting in some reading time. Mornings have also become the time for my daily walks, and in some cases, daily meditations. I've been really inspired by my friend John Edmonds in this regard. During the summer, John and I would do a weekly meditation together, and they became some of the best parts of my week. 
the starts of the day has also helped me to ease myself back into my hometown. After many years away, I recently moved back. I'm rediscovering and reigniting my relationship to this area that truly contains so much history. From Point Comfort, which received a lot of attention last year via the New York Times 1619 Project and other contemporary efforts to commemorate that point um, in history, to sites of the Revolutionary and Civil Wars, to the birth sites of people such as Ella Fitzgerald, Pearl Bailey, Ella Baker, and Missy Elliott. It's a complex region, like many areas in the U.S. South, and I'm engaging with this history and reality in new ways. As a writer, I spend a bulk of my day inside, especially now during quarantine, where museums, galleries, and art spaces are not open in the ways that they once were. I'm working hard to care for my plant friends in my house and in my garden while finding a lot of sonic solace in the music and mixes of Reuven, a talented musician who's also from the area. Crisis upends so much, and there are days when truly all I can do is sit on my couch and mindlessly lose myself in Netflix. I'm doing my best to not feel guilty about this, and most importantly, to allow my home to remain a space for rest, tranquility, and especially now, the place where I'm most excited to learn. Jessica, thank you so much. Welcome to Loam Listen. How are you doing right now? Thank you for having me. I'm feeling really great. It's a rainy day outside, and those days are always good for my anxiety. So I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. Okay, honestly, same. Like, I'm breaking the fourth wall a little bit, but, like, I'm sitting on my bedroom floor. It's dark. I have my lamp going. I have my tea. It's also raining in D.C., so, like, I'm feeling very in it, very calm. Mm -hmm. As a water sign, I feel like I'm always kind of, like, I feel best when it's, like, raining and just sort of that, like, aquatic sort of element just happening. It really soothes me. Absolutely. It's so soothing, and it reminds me to pace myself and breathe there's something about the rhythm of rain that just really keeps me in line for a lack of a better phrase I love that and I just want to get a little context for this specific episode so um as you know as the audience knows this entire series is dedicated to sort of breaking down how home can be so generative and instructive when it comes to navigating this moment, capital T, capital M. And I've been like really racking my brain trying to think about all the possible um, manifestations of home as far as home being like this creative tool, this political tool. And recently I've been watching a lot of Lovecraft County, shout out to that show on HBO. And I just been really engrossed in like um, the idea of like a haunted house. And 
I think as like a horror fan, like when we think of like hauntedness and haunted homes and things like that, like for me, it's never really about like the ghost or like the exorcism or like the spooky kooky ooky shenanigans of it all. It really is about how when we think about hauntedness, like it's really about examining our own anxieties and examining um, just the things that like we're afraid to grapple with and really just like sit with and commune with. And I feel like in this moment, we're all sort of in that space. And I'm kind of like, I really want to know how sort of engage in like this collective moment of like truth telling and how can home be again generative and instructive when it comes to that. So I'm super excited to dive into that with you. But likewise. Yeah, and but first and foremost, let's like do the simple, you know, cutesy stuff. So who are you and what do you do? Yes. Well, it would not be a podcast if I didn't let folks know that I'm a Scorpio. <laughs> Um, Scorpio every single day. Um, most days thereafter, I'm a reader, a writer, and a novice gardener. I spend a lot of time thinking about art, culture, history, how they are entangled, what we can learn from this nexus and meeting point. And perhaps officially, I am an art critic <laughs> and co-founder of Art Thought Black, which is a journal of art criticism that publishes Black critics globally that was founded almost six years ago now with my dear friend, uh, Taylor Aldridge. No, I just want to give a shout out to that platform. I remember like stumbling across it like years ago and being like, this is such a beautiful, um, just incredible archive. So shout out to that specific um, piece of your work and portfolio. Um, but you mentioned you being a novice gardener, and I kind of want to like tease that out a little bit more, but sort of couch it in this larger question. So I mentioned that I'm so interested in like breaking down this idea of like haunted homes with you. And for the listeners, I don't think anyone knows this, but we're both Scorpios and also we're from the same area of Virginia, coastal Virginia. I'm from Hampton. Where are you from specifically? Uh, Hampton as well. Oh my god, yep. amazing. Um, shout out to the Crabbers. I'm doing <laughs> shout out to them. Um, and I think thinking about haunted homes is so appropriate for the two of us because when I think of hauntedness, I automatically think of Hampton. Um, mm-hmm. so again, it's the site of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans, which I think is just such an interesting little tidbit. And honestly, a tidbit that I came to like a little bit later in my life, like growing up, like no one really talked about the like tree, mm-hmm. like, you know, was the literal site of the arrival of our ancestors um, in this country. Um, so I always think about how Hampton is so heavily haunted by white supremacy, colonialism, imperialism, all of that. And also like recently, um, it's kind of become the site, or not even recently, but for decades now probably, it's been the site of like climate change as well. So also haunted by like environmental degradation, which again, is heavily connected to imperialism, racial capitalism, mm-hmm. all of those are so connected and intertwined. And I'm just like so interested in 
I know a lot of your work deals with like excavating a lot from the South, excavating a lot from Hampton, Virginia in that area specifically. So I just want to know for you, like what has it been like, especially right now to really sit with that hauntedness and sit with this haunted space? Like how, what have you been learning? How have you been navigating it? And what have you mm-hmm. been pulling out? And I brought up gardening because I feel like your work is sort of in that conversation somehow. So yeah, tell me more about that. I love that question and provocation, um, especially because I think in my experience growing up in the Hampton Roads, I early on, thanks to my father, really, was able to kind of understand the historical position of this landscape and geography. Um, My father is a history buff and was a history teacher for a long time. And I think growing up in a household with him, we were constantly in conversation in some way about kind of the dominant narratives of the place, of the landscape, and the ways in which Black and Native folks have a particular type of truth that doesn't always align with the dominant narrative. Um, And so coming back to the Hampton Roads in the fall of 2019, actually, so much of those kind of childhood conversations were on my mind. And I think coming back in this, this kind of heightened political moment, if you will, as someone who also had spent so much time sharpening my own politics, it really prepared me, I think, to be here and to kind of wrestle with the entanglement. Um, You know, when you and I were thinking about the framework for this conversation and the idea of the hauntings were coming up and present, I think I was immediately drawn to some of the feelings I have whenever I think about the playwright Adrian Kennedy's work. Um, And I bring her up because I think Kennedy on like a very kind of surface level is really great at teasing out what it means to confront the hate in our life. Um, I think she does surreal and the autobiographical and the haunting masterfully. And again, this is kind of a very brief and surface reading of her canon, but I remember seeing a a recent play of hers, he brought her heart, heart back in a box which follows the story of um, an interracial couple in the 1940s in the deep south in Georgia. And I was, as I was leaving that play, I kept asking myself, what haints do I need to confront? You know, what are the ghosts that have been following me? And coming back to the Hampton Roads area, I'm really reminded that so much of that process for me is deeply connected to family and not necessarily kind of sites of trauma, but I think sites of silence, right? And so as I am thinking about being here in a place that, as you said, it's kind of so deeply emblematic of this meeting point of imperialism, colonialism, kind of environmental catastrophe, I'm thinking a lot about the things that aren't being said the things that haven't been said on a very kind of one-to-one level with my family, the ancestors whose names we don't know, but whose presences loom quite large, you know? Um, And I have found, I think, in my own 
way I have come to that grappling, not actually through writing, um, because I think the, the writerly thing to say would be, I, I deal with this through on the page, but I've actually started to think through my relationship to these silences, through my relationship to land and gardening. Um, I have a, a great grandmother who at one point owned large, a large amount of land in the Newport News area. And in, through some way or the other, that land was taken away from her. I've never quite been able to get the full story. And I remember talking to my grandmother about my garden. And she said to me, and it was kind of this surprising moment for me, but really haphazard to her. She goes, you remind me of my grandmother. You just have her spirit. And this was coming up after I was talking to my grandmother about what I'm growing in my garden and things like that. And so for me, you know, this is this is a person who I had never, my grandmother had never talked to me significantly about her grandmother. She didn't really come up often. But in that moment, I realized that here is a person that I'm actually connected to in this intimate way. Um, and for some reason or other, just never knew that before, before now, essentially, right? And so I'm thinking a lot about the things that we don't say, the things we can't say, the things we aren't quite ready to say as it relates to hauntings and how we can kind of move through those silences um, in embodied manners, you know, be it in the dirt, be it through dance um, or what have you. Ooh, so on my end, I just feel like furiously scrib uh, scribbling down notes because there's so much there. But first, I just want to give a shout out to Adrian Kennedy. I remember back in undergrad, um, just like really excavating and dealing with and just confronting her work, um, Funny House of a Negro, which yes. is the perfect like sort of piece of art to really elevate in this moment. So for all the listeners, like definitely check out that piece of work. Um, for me, it's so seminal, especially when thinking about just like the haunting that's like over America right now. I mean, without a doubt, we're in this huge moment of almost like a racial exorcism where like it's really reaching a boiling point where like we're really just like breaking open and having all these really hard, deep conversations about race and like even happening for a minute, but they've really been reaching sort of like a really heightened moment. And just going back to this idea of, are we ready and equipped to like say the things that need to be said and that haven't been said? I'm just thinking about how that's for me is such a black Southern question. Cause when I think about my family, I have roots in South Carolina, both sides of my family are from a really small town called McCormick there. Um, and I just always think about how um, out of like a certain like strategy, there was always cer a, a certain veil of like secretness around certain things. And I remember like going to like funerals when I was growing up and like all this like shit would come out. And I used to be, you know, like as a five-year-old, eight-year-old being like, oh my God, like all this tea is spilling out, like all the family trauma and drama. And, you know, as like two queer people often think about how like queerness especially is this thing that's like shrouded and like, you know, well, you know, Auntie Suzanne and her little friend, like queerness is like never named. So I always think about how that question just feels so black and so Southern and like kind of like queer at the same time. Like I feel like we're always embroiled and sort of thinking through like what can be said, what can be said or can't be said. And just like touching on land, I think 
when we're thinking about hauntings, I think we often forget about land and how land has been, and water too, has been the site of so much trauma, so much atrocity, so much horror. Um, and as someone who's really always thinking about how do we make waterscapes, landscapes more accessible and pleasurable and joyous for Black folks, something that always comes up is, you know, I don't want a garden because that reminds me of like the ancestors who worked the land, you know, for free by coercion. Um, and, you know, I don't want to go out in the woods because, you know, that's the same patch of woods where like, you know, X, Y, and Z ancestor was like lynched and hung up and strung up. So there's so much deep, just like pain there that I think we never really give much attention to. And I love that you're sort of working through that and confronting that through gardening. And it just feels like a really beautiful um, just like moment of like alchemy where like you're directly taking that on, but then also saying, I'm choosing to work with the land and reposition it and reframe it as a healing place, as a joyous place, mm -hmm. as a pleasurable space, um, which it always has been. But mm -hmm. through these like larger systems, these larger historical events that still have resonance now, um, they really have been turned into the sites where the theater and project of like all these things, colonialism, white supremacy again, have been playing out. And um, I would just like love to learn more about your gardening and your work on that end. And again, like what have you, what have been like the really practical, tangible tools and things that you've been learning about the art of like confronting and the art of truth telling and the art of naming things that have to be named like what skills have you been learning to make that possible for you yeah i think you know i want to honor and acknowledge your really salient point about blood memory and both the kind of the ways we learn to celebrate through that but also the ways in which we have carried we as in black folks um the way we can carry pain and trauma through blood memory you know I certainly, in the moment when my grandmother tells me that I remind her of someone who was deeply important to who she has been and is, you know, it was one, I think, of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had with my grandmother. Um, and yet I am also not someone who's interested in romanticizing a quote-unquote return to land. I think that the ways in which Black folks and Native folks, especially because of where we grew up and how those histories are always commingled, I think that farming and gardening are absolutely sites of knowledge share and knowledge generation. But I don't ever want to ignore the real memories and the kind of histories that linger as well. So I appreciate um, that point. You know, I think coming back to the 757, as we call it, um, I was all coming back um, around the same time as a really dear friend, Brian, was also coming back home. Brian and I grew up together. We went to school in New York together. We lived in New York together. And we were texting about something or other, maybe mid-January, and Brian is like, hey, did you know there's a free community garden program in Hanson? Do you want to join it? And I was just like, sure, why not? Um, I think that 
because, as you already mentioned, this area is dealing in a very explicit way with kind of the catastrophe of climate degradation, choosing to garden was a way for me to think about what are the are there ways to kind of preserve what is here now? Are there knowledges that I can gather as a young person, as a Black person who might not call this place her final resting place, but still wants to be in a kind of good communion with this site, right? Um, and so it was wonderful to really have this push by a friend who's also thinking about some of these questions in the same way and do it together. Um, and so gardening for me has been a physical relief, um, but it's also been a way to think thoughtfully and intentionally and joyously even about how I can offer something back to a place, you know, offer something back to a geography that is really hurting right now. You know, we don't, I don't think it's first nature to think about these non-human life presences as sentient, but they are, right? And I, I want to be someone who is ever conscious of that and also in doing so forming relationships of reciprocity. And I think gardening for me is not only a way to now that I know be in communion with this ancestor of mine, but also to be in reciprocity with this site um, that is also navigating changes as we humans are navigating changes. No, and I just really want to like, woof, again, I'm just like, just waiting and all of that and absorbing it. And I sort of love this idea that when we engage in sort of like this act of like confrontation of like haunted spaces, like, that not only has healing reverberations for us, but also the more than human world. And I think also just like society more broadly. I think, you know, I always think of like liberation in a really fractal sense, you know, the things that you practice can always reverberate out. So I think just like engaging in these practices, like we have real, again, just like resonance for like you, but then like also everyone else that you're in community with. Um, whether that's like human can or more than human can. And I just want to like touch on the individual bit a little bit more. Mm -hmm. You mentioned blood memory and you talk a little bit about what does it mean to um, engage with hauntedness in the sense of a space is haunted, land is haunted, water is haunted, but you know, we're also really haunted by like familial trauma, by like these larger things. And I really wasn't expecting to like mention this piece of yours, but for me, the one piece that I constantly go back to and I always get something out of it every time I read it is your piece, Allostasis. And I'm not really mm -hmm. sure how you would describe it because for me, it's kind of like, it's cultural criticism, but like art critique, but a poem, but an essay. So I'm really curious to know how you would describe it. So that's one. But then too, um, for the listeners, it's this really beautiful piece that, um, at least for me, really touches on specifically like breast cancer and cancer amongst like um, Black women, femme lineages, and just like really touching on this idea of like trauma being passed down and um, just sort of like the fear that can come for that. We're sort of like, oh, like 
I have seen this thing infiltrate my bloodline. Will I be next? That's the one who's connected to that. And I think I always love that piece because I think around like two, three years ago now, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer and she's since recovered. But I remember going back to that piece and going back to, you know, writers like Audre Lorde and discovering new writers like Anne Boyer who were sort of touching on similar concepts and I was just like wow like this is a trauma that is not only like physically passed on but also a trauma that is passed on through us through like this world um I kept really thinking about how wow this like breast cancer other sorts of cancers that have manifested in my family other forms of sicknesses these really do feel like us inheriting sort of the byproducts of living in this racist, white supremacist, patriarchal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, society and world. And, you know, I just like had so much anxiety. I was like, oh my gosh, like I too inheriting that hauntedness and all of those ghosts. Um, so I want to know for you, how have you been navigating sort of um, just like more of those individual ghosts, where they are, whether they are like showing up in a really physical way like cancer or showing up in these other ways? Thank you for that. And also, yeah, want to lift up your mom. I'm glad to hear that she and her body are kind of on the other side of this, you know. Um, I remember being really sad when I first wrote that piece um, because I was reflecting on the transitions of three of my aunt, biological kin, three of my aunts who had transitioned as a result of cancer. And also, I think I was in a moment when I was trying to think about what was at stake for Black queer folks, right? That in exactly the same manner as you described, we are all laden with kind of the consequences of these types of harm these systemic harm and it really was jarring for me to kind of wake up one day and be like oh shit like this has happened to this person related to me this person related to me and this person related to me what does that actually mean for my own self um and also confront the realities of a world that has changed due to the work of people like Audre Lorde and Tony K. Bunbara and June Jordan, for example, um, and to know that their bodies held so much of the weight of that work. And, you know, I think Allostasis, which I most days consider to be an essay because I would not dare uh, call it a poem and disrespect the work of poets, um, and I am not a poet, um, but I, I think for me, it was a way of doing, of speaking back to myself, of kind of trying to ask questions that I don't quite think any of us have the answers for, um, right, and negotiate a relationship to kin in the broadest understandings of that term. Um, as well as I think in some other ways, a relationship to science too, which has not always been the friend of non-white folks, of poor folks, of non-straight folks, et cetera, et cetera. And I think now if I'm reflecting on that piece, which for me is it's still a thing that I'm very proud to have written, I think the ways that I'm approaching kind of navigating 
relationships to the individual ghosts that confronted me that I'm confronting, a lot of it does look like <laughs> hard dialogue, um, which I know that not everyone is in a position to do that um, for reasons of safety and security, for reasons of kind of access and this plane, right, in this life. Um, I have actually been really thankful to find chosen family that has always made space for me to ask questions aloud that I think some of the Black Southern silences in my own kind of quote-unquote biological family have not yet figured out how to make space for. I think making space for silence is really hard. And for me, dealing with those entanglements, dealing with these specters, has kind of looked like a mix of chosen family, a mix of meditation, you know, I think a mix of therapy, to be quite honest with you, um, and a mix of writing. I, I think that I would not dare attempt to place on my work all of the reckonings that I hope to one day reach, but I am in a moment when I can understand writing in conversation with these other embodied practices does push me somewhere. Um, and so when I feel most good, I think that I'm kind of figuring out how to tango with these ghosts, do this choreography thing that allows an acknowledgement of what preceded me, an acknowledgement that the way that those consequences live on my body are valid and deserve to be attended to. And I think perhaps most importantly, kind of an acknowledgement that rest is equally necessary in this process too. And so I'm hoping that that combination will offer me the reckonings that I'm looking for, you know? And to be quite honest, maybe that's not the best way. Um, and I'm open to kind of thinking and hearing and learning other pathways. But for now, I think that's where, that's where I feel good, you know? No, that was incredible. And one thing that I am really thinking about now, you mentioned like your friends, your community, um, family, that creates sort of conditions for being able to confront all of these things. And I'm, again, just thinking about your work. And for me, one thing that I'm always struck by is just the deep sense and celebration in your work of just like Black intimacy and Black feeling and Black emotion. And I put Black specifically in front of all of those things. I want to be very intentional about a very specific type of like intimacy and emotion and privacy. Um, you know, like I've listened to past podcasts that you've been on and there's one that I think you did with Taylor where like, it really does feel like you guys are just like reciting letters to each other. And it's so intimate and private and beautiful. And you wrote a piece recently, just, um, engaging with these really beautiful photos, um, mm -hmm. of we're presuming Black queer women in some sort of entanglement with each other. And again, just the reading of it um, almost feels like an intrusion of like this private mm -hmm. moment between you and these two separate photographs. So I just want to know when thinking about all of this, when we're engaging sort of like the hauntedness of like spaces in ourselves, 
Um, for you, what has been the role of just like Black intimacy and Black privacy and Black emotion? And I, I, I think that question is really relevant considering that we are in a quarantine situation where like mm. there's such, uh, there's greater capacity, great opportunity to engage in all of those things and be really intentional about them. It almost feels like, you know, we're not back in the pre-COVID world. We're like, we have to steal away time and just sort of, you know, girl, come over, have a glass of rosé. Now it feels like we have the time and the slowness to actually do that, but in a way that feels a little bit more intentional, a little bit more strategic, and like it's leaning and gesturing towards some overarching goal that's just beyond the pure pleasure of it yeah that's such a such a such a great question you know in the spirit of black southern style i take and have always taken very seriously the art of gathering right and so i use that as a preface to acknowledge that like my home is generally the place where people gather um, I often joke that I live in the le- living single house because I live with my cousin and one of my best friends. Um, I'm Khadija naturally most of the time. But, you know, like that, that art of the gather and the kind of convening is something that is so close to my heart because it's the way that I saw friendship and care and love modeled for me um, through my Southern elders. And so intimacy, understanding intimacy starts from that point for me. It starts from the point of kind of like come in from the rain and like sit on the porch, let me get you something and drink while you dry off. You know, it starts from the point of, oh, my friend who is the mother is trying to think about how to kind of offer something really fun and you get for her children, like come over let's plan it out you know it starts from wow we're really sad today let's get a bottle of wine and watch waiting to exhale and I think that for the most part that spirit lingered and has lingered as I've navigated COVID personally and in a close community of friends here so I I come to kind of understanding intimacy in that way through the gather Um, but I also think to the question, I understand Black intimacy and I've come to think about it most critically through photography. Um, There are, I think, image makers for me who really represent this kind of, one, rigor in terms of technique and formal approach, but there's a tenderness there in Black photography that enables me to kind of imagine the best ways to be tender with the people around me. And so in that essay for Southern Cultures, where I am looking at a photograph of um, Amazali Meredith and her long-term partner, Dr. Edna Mead Colson, as well as a photograph of two unnamed young Black women, I'm choosing to read them in a way that I think enables kind of frameworks for intimacy. both in platonic and non-platonic ways, and also kind of understands those frameworks through a Southern lens. I think Black Southern folk really are the creme de la creme when it comes to kind of making people feel at ease. And that is 
something that I take very seriously because I think it is it is how you love someone, you know? And in my home, I think it was really hard navigating the first few months of COVID when no one knew what to do. And I also had folks in my home who were still working, right? And so there was, again, to come back to the body, as we've been talking about, a heightened sense of the way that this new um, public health crisis literally was going to live on the bodies of people that I was living with um, and also what it might mean to not be able to gather in a way that had become so integral to how we all understood ourselves in that home. Um, I think now, even though crisis has not let up, even though it's still ongoing, we as a kind of group of folks, as comrades, as friends, as kind of chosen family, make decisions about how to gather and I hope, and thus far, that has not posed any threat to our health. But I think that that is what intimacy looks like for me. And that is how I'm kind of holding on to the question of, like, how it's cultivated, right? That, like, it's, it is cultivated in the home and it's cultivated thoughtfully and deliberately. Um, but it's also cultivated kind of in ways that are that allow for like problem solving in a way that do allow for pleasure in ways that allow for rest. You know, I can't say that enough, but I think rest in this moment has also been a thing that I'm learning how to take seriously. Um, and I think making space for rest is equally a part of making space for intimacy. Ooh, so that was a whole sermon. I hope notes. I <laughs> had their pins out this entire time and no I just really want to attest to the fact that I do agree that black southern folks are the criminal creme of gathering and community we know because we have the drinks on that you know the iced tea we have the snacks the desserts always on deck you're leaving our place with some leftovers just the whole we're chef's kiss we know how to do it and I just really elevate the fact that, like, um, in this moment, it feels like we're not only communing with ourselves, like, having these moments of deep isolation and intimacy with, like, our own thoughts and feelings, and then also carefully communing with others. But I think the past couple of months have also been a really beautiful opportunity to really commune with um, just like ghosts and ghosts for me in a more ancestral way, um, really leaning on and allowing ourselves to really surrender and be led by people who have also survived moments that have felt um, like we're at the edges of apocalypse. Like this, this moment, the feelings that this moment is conjuring aren't new. Um, so many other generations, people before us have also been in the exact moment of like, facing an authoritarian regime and facing fascism and facing uh, just like racial terrorism and all of that. And I really quickly want to know for you, um, who are some of those ghosts that you have been really leaning into being led by, being guided by? I'm really curious mm -hmm. to know. Yeah, you know, I, I really, I want to lift up the names of those two elders, again, Amazoe Meredith and Dr. Edna Meek Colson. Um, I have been kind of sitting with them, if you will, or in study of their archives for the past year or so. 
Um, and I first came to their legacy through the writing of Mario Gooden, who has an essay collection entitled Dark Space. Um, Amazali Meredith was an artist and architect from Lynchburg, Virginia. And this is how she kind of is understood in the world through this kind of leg the legacy of her cultural production. Um, and I have been most interested in kind of the world around her, the constellation that she was able to cultivate as an artist, an architect, an educator. Um, and naturally in that study, I was led to Dr. Edna Mead Colson, who was her long, lifelong partner, um, partner in activism and crime, if you will. And what I've really been taking away from their partnership, and this may sound trivial, but is an appreciation for the letter as form, as gesture. In the papers of Amaza Lee Meredith, she kept meticulous notes about who she was and her family's legacy, but she was also careful to kind of preserve letters from colleagues and students and other family members throughout most of her life. These two women were born in the late 1800s and they died in the 1980s. So they lived very full, full lives. Um, and the letter for me is something that's so easy, easily kind of ignored as a like mode of communication, like this antiquated mode of communication. But I also understand it as a really important way to keep records. Um, and I, I'm also I'm not trying to prioritize the written versus the oral. You know, like Black folks, like we love uh, some oral history. And I am, I'm always here for that. I think the oral traditions are so important to be preserved. At the same time, I've been thinking about through the study of these two women, kind of what it means to be so abundant and attentive to the letter right, and to preserve them as a marker, both of kind of time and presence, but a marker of geography as well, that Lynchburg is a small rural city in Virginia, and they eventually kind of made their way closer to Richmond as educators at Virginia State University, which is a small historically black college and university in the state. Um, but through those letters, you not only get to a sense of how the land around them changed, you also get a sense of how the world was changing, right? And 20th century is full of different kind of trailblazing moments, moments of upheaval, moments of racial reckoning, et cetera, et cetera. And I love that the form of the letter, even in the kind of briefest instance, communicates something about that and what they were watching. Um, and again, you know, it's so, it's really ephemeral too, right? But like archival study, you get into kind of a set of papers and notes, and then you leave them and you have to think about what it means to come back to them and you see something new every time you come back. But I have really enjoyed following how they followed um, their lives and the lives of their loved ones through the letter. And so I think for me in this moment, I'm trying to remember that as a mode of communication that can be so profound, even when we still have all of these other mechanisms and tools for talking to one another. You know, like the letter, the letter still feels good. It still holds a lot of weight. Um, and I really appreciate it coming back to that through the study of those two women. 
No, and I love that, especially in this moment. Like, over the past six months, I have never gotten so many, like, handwritten notes and letters and postcards in my life. And I think it's beautiful, one, because, like, it is, like, this act of archive making. You mentioned sort of, like, letters being, like, these really beautiful artifacts of, like, a very specific time and place. And just on this note of, like, Communing with ancestors, I always think about um, Mary Wright Edelman who had this really great provocation about, you know, what are you also doing to be a good ancestor? Mm-hmm. One day, you're not going to be of this plane. So what are you leaving behind mm-hmm. to sort of serve as an archive, as a blueprint? So I love um, the idea of a letter being a tool that we can use to not only um, serve as a portal to like um, take us back to what our ancestors were doing and saying and surviving, um, but then also the letter being a tool that we can use ourselves to sort of like mark this moment so it can serve as a for whoever is coming up behind us in this moment. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned like technology. We have texting. We have Instagram all these ways of communicating but I think um it just feels so automated um and like letter making writing correspondence just feels a lot more intentional a lot more slow and still so no I think that's absolutely beautiful and I kind of want to close out just like on sort of thinking about technology now um and thinking about all this language around ghosts inspectors and hauntiness um as I was prepping for this conversation, I was thinking towards the end about how we have all these great tools in this moment. And one that I think for me personally is really undervalued is the tool of like ghosting. And I think now in this moment, it's like easier than ever to ghost. And um, ghosting, I think in a very millennial now sense is understood as sort of like, you know, if you're like, and in brand new relationship with someone, you all of a sudden just kind of like acts off all communication with without any rationale, without any warning, without any sort of like preface saying like, hey, I'm cutting things off. So I think we understand ghosting in that sense, like in a very like tender world sort of like definition. Um, but I kind of want to think about ghosting in terms of just letting go of like things that like no longer serve us, whether they are people or whether they are just entire structures and systems and ways of knowing and ways of being. And there's this really great quote that I love from Maya Binyam. And she wrote this piece for the New York Times, I think called Letters Recommendation, Ghosting. And she defines ghosting as, um, Ghosting provides a line of flight free from the ties that hurt us or bore us or make us feel uneasy. Finally, we can turn our attention inward. And I just think more than ever, ghosting has so much utility in this moment. So for you, as you've been engaging more with haunted spaces, engage with the ghosts that inhabit your own body, um, after doing all of that, what have you landed on as far as being the things that like you're ready to like ghost and let go of? Okay. Um, this is such a great question because on like a very fundamental level, like practically speaking, I have completely ghosted the deadline, which is to say that me and productivity are just, we're not, we're not, we're not seeing eye to eye right now. 
um, I, I, I really want to be emphatic about that because I think all, many of us were already struggling to kind of think through our relationship to time, productivity, and how we could refuse the harm of capitalism, right? That we are more than our output. And I think this moment of crisis, in some ways for me, really illuminated how much I was working not in service of my own well-being. And I had to get to a point where I lost the guilt around not being able to kind of generate a thing um, in the context of COVID. You know, it is absolutely scary to think about the way in which death is looming in this way. Um, And I think so many of us folks who exist along this social margin, you know, the, the, the crisis is never far from us, right? And so COVID brought it so close. Um, and I think this has been a time of grief and mourning. But I'm also really paying attention to the systems and structures that in grief and mourning, in times of crisis, still expect us to work, produce, move as usual. And I'm just like, what is a deadline? <laughs> Please, what is a deadline? You know? Um, and I, I, I don't know if that, I don't know if that's like, privileged place to speak from. I don't know if that is me avoiding things. I'm not sure. I just know that I want my folks and the folks I care about to be able to move easily and gently and slowly um, when we are already the folks doing so much work, so much organizing, so much kind of push for paradigm shift, so much kind of culture making. I have been thinking about the deadline as a thing to let go of, because right now, what I would like to do is rest. Um, I think that's like the perfect place to end on. Down the deadlines. I don't know her. I don't <laughs> love that. And oh my God, thank you so much, Jessica. This whole entire conversation, so lush, so juicy. Um, I think you left us with so many great nuggets and tools for, again, like navigating this moment, navigating just the incomprehensibility of it all. So thank you so much for just your generosity of time and brilliance and wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. This was such a pleasure. I'm really honored to be a part of this. Okay, y'all. So Jessica Jess gave us all this juiciness, all this brilliance, and they're gonna take us out with an offering. So Jess, I'll hand it off to you if you want to introduce the piece. We'll be reading. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. I wanted to close with a reading of a poem by my friend Aika Sadagat um, that was recently published through Night Boat Books. And it is entitled, Litanies for Our Future Now Divine, after Mark Aguilar. Fuck apologies, fuck apologists, fuck racists, abusers, and rapists. Fuck trauma and the trauma from dealing with trauma. Fuck oppressive traditions, 
fuck transphobia, fuck virginity, what the fuck, fuck virtue and valor, fuck the normal, fuck your normal, fuck your normal home, your normal body, your normal nervous system, fuck your full night's rest and bottomless brunch, fuck your I'm still learning and useless guilt, fuck this country, fuck that I am tired of everything, Fuck that you are tired over nothing. Fuck the state. Fuck your peace in the military. Fuck fascists and good cops because fuck all cops. Fuck prisons. Fuck optics and the panopticon. Fuck holding it in to keep it together. Fuck grieving because it never ends. Fuck that you are, are okay. Fuck you for I am not. Amen. Beloved are the fire starters. Beloved are the reed. Beloved are the pangs wrought by exhaustion and moon. Beloved are the terrified. Beloved are the lazy. Beloved are the beaten. Beloved are the confused. Beloved are the ever weeping, my kith and molten kin. Beloved are the unforgiving. Beloved are the bruised. Beloved are the nights like years filled with panic and demons. Beloved are those demons. Beloved are the drowning. Beloved are the flightless. Beloved are the steel bound with every or zero hope. Beloved are those who can't escape, won't escape, will never escape. Beloved are those tired from keeping it in to hold it together. Beloved are those who are forced to break apart. Beloved are the lonely. Beloved are those who want to forget but cannot forget and won't forget. Beloved are the forgotten, whom I didn't remember, couldn't remember, will learn to remember and to respect, honor, and hold. Amen. Thank you for listening to Loam Listen. Again, I'm your host, Amirio Freeman, and this episode was edited by the amazing Isaac Selk with music provided by Isaac Selk. Until next time.